0: This morning, if you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 4. Before we get there, this is the incredible riches that we have from God the Father and the Son. And you're going to see that the entire Trinity is actually involved in these wonderful blessings that we have because of who we are in Christ. And it is so important for us this morning as we begin this journey through this long section of praise that encompasses really the first 14 verses, but very specifically from verse 3 to verse 14. In the original language there, Paul, being a Hebrew, he would have written uh, with a Hebrew flavor, and as he wrote in that Hebrew flavor, he responded with, in essence, what we would call a hymn or a psalm of praise, a barakah. And so as he begins this incredible section that we're going to attempt to get through a few verses of it this morning because it's so rich and so deep. I thought what a better thing to start this journey through the book of Ephesians with the most difficult doctrine in all of Christendom. The doctrine of election. Nothing has divided the church. Nothing has split up brothers and sisters in Christ. No thing have we discussed in theological circles and in churches throughout a time, really since the time of the Reformation, from the time of Martin Luther, then, then this doctrine of election, clearly taught in Scripture. And so this morning, if you've come in and you are searching for that answer, maybe you grew up in a Reformed tradition, or perhaps you grew up in an Arminian tradition, I figured, why not? Let's go for it. Right out of the get-go. So this morning... This incredible group of riches that we have from Father and Son. Would you pray with me? Father, we have come this morning to hear your word. Lord, to have you speak to us. For you to put your truth into our lives in such a way that we can grow and be blessed. Lord, for some of us there will be a stretching. For some of us there will be an encouragement. For some of us there will be an admonition. And God, we know that you have a perfect purpose for this morning. And so we pray that that perfect purpose would be in no way hindered by your messenger. And so God, would you speak to us now through the power of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. i share a little story with you. It's called Five Million Dollars. It was written by D.L. Moody, and when he wrote it in 1896, he was writing specifically on this particular verse, uh, verses 3 through 6, He says, One thing I know, and though I cannot speak for others, I can speak for myself. I cannot read others' minds or hearts. I cannot read the Bible and lay a hold of it for others. But I can read it for myself, and I take God at His word. A great trouble is that people take everything in general, they do not take it for themselves. And suppose a man should say to me, Moody, There's a man in Europe who died last week and left $5 million to a certain individual. Well, I say, I don't doubt that. It's a rather common thing that rich people die every day. I don't think anything more about it. But suppose he said, he left the money to you. Then I pay attention. I say, to me, yes, he left it to you. Suddenly I become interested. I want to know all about it. And so we are apt to think that Christ died for sinners, and yet he died for everybody, but nobody in particular. You see, when the truth of the eternal things contained in God's word become personal, we begin to pay attention. Amen? You have to appropriate these blessings for you. They do us no good if they stay in the ethereal realm. All of a sudden, there's somebody else's blessings. There's somebody else's truth. They're meant for everybody, but not really for me specifically. They are for you, family of God, specifically. Amen? These are your promises. They're your truths. They're things that you have inherited through Christ Jesus. And so as we look at these riches this morning, they're yours, You must look at them that way. And as he begins through this incredible eulogy, you'll see the Trinity at work. Pick up now in verse 4, we're reading from the New King James. And it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And so when we read that verse, immediately people start to become in two different camps. One emphasizes the sovereignty of God, and one emphasizes the choices that mankind makes. One says that God in his sovereign plans just begins to work because he can, and the other says because mankind's involved, it's got to be a mess. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Notice what he chose us for. Does anyone see salvation in view there? It's not, is it? He chose us very specifically for something, and we'll get to that in a moment. Having predestined us. Oh, do I hate that word. You you see, that word predestined to so many people has has a meaning that is not intended here. When we think of predestined, we think for ordained, we think all these wonderful words that are contained in Scripture, but we think almost without our own ability to have any part in it. Having predestined us to what? To adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise, to the glory of His grace, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. For in Him we have redemption through His blood, forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He has made abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. I want you to take a look in your English Bibles, generally speaking. You're going to notice that throughout all of these verses, by and large, there are commas separating sentence and verse. Do you notice that? It's an English way of trying to put in what is actually there in the original language, and that's this is a single thought. It's meant to be taken as a unified whole with many different parts. The same is true when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, amen? And then joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, self-control, all those things also love, but every one of those things is a part of what love is. Amen? And so when you look at this passage, you must keep it in its proper context. You can't pull one verse out and make it devoid of what the rest contains. And so this morning, I want to speak to you on a couple of different issues And the first of which, which causes uh, so many problems, what in the world is predestination? What is predestination? We're going to see two things, the first of which is what we would call Calvinistic unconditional election. And when I use those theologic terms, I'm using them so you can understand what a large chunk of Christendom would say about this verse. And it's very important that we get both views. And I will tell you towards the end of this that both find their proof scriptures. You see, when we think about how God elects us, we we think about how God selects us, when we think about how God chooses us, all of these words are used in your Bible, amen? He's chosen us. He's adopted us. He's selected us. He's elected us. We've been brought into his family. kind of sounds like God just threw out the lasso, grabbed you, and right into his family. Amen? It's the way it sounds, unless you look at the totality of what Scripture says on this subject. If you talk to someone who is of a Reformed theological background, and again, I want to make very, very, very clear here. So hear these next words very carefully. We have brothers and sisters in all different flavors and all different denominations who hold different views on this particular subject It is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Amen? Amen. And so though we may disagree on certain issues of doctrine, and I believe that there's a reason to disagree with our brothers and sisters who happen to be of this bent, I am not, repeat, not saying that they do not know and love the Lord. So please be very clear on that. But if you were to talk to someone, and my brother happens to be of that bent, and we've had some spirited debate, uh, I have written on the subject for the Bible College. Uh, I've co-authored a couple of books on the subject, and so I feel like I can at least articulate it a little bit for you this morning. When you look at these verses, you'll, you'll notice that it says that we have been foreordained before the world was ever created But for ordained, the question needs to be, for what? And so when you speak to someone... Uh, who happens to have this particular view, the Calvinistic view, if you want to put it that way, of unconditional election. That is the second of five points in Calvinism. So when someone says to you, hey, I'm a five-point Calvinist, what they believe is in the total depravity of man. We would all agree that man is totally depraved. And they believe in unconditional election. They believe in irresistible grace. And they also believe in limited atonement and then perseverance of the saints. And so This second point is the sticking point for many. God's unconditional election. In other words, if you take it to its logical and fullest conclusion, God himself selects who's going to be saved, and also, by nature, then he must also select who is going to be damned. Does that sound a tad bit capricious to you? A little bit unfair, possibly, So if you happen to not be saved, you're just a misfortunate one who happened to be born someplace where God really didn't intend to ever save you. And so I want to make sure that we have this cleared up because so many people are bound up in this bondage, one side or the other. And in that sense, as we think about it, and so you don't think I'm overstating the case, John Calvin himself wrote in the Institutes of Christian Religion, the third book in chapter 23, and it says, and I quote, Not all men are created with a similar destiny, but eternal life is foreordained to some and eternal damnation to others. Every man therefore being created for one or the other side of these two ends, we say he is predestined either to life or to death. Ouch kind of makes God a little bit uh, upset, angry, and not too horribly fair, amen? In other words, God only offers his salvation to some. He doesn't offer it to all. We know that all have sinned, amen, come short of the glory of God. Isn't that what Romans 3.23 says? You, You mean he never intended to save those people? We all can look at scripture and say he uses certain people at certain times. That is also true. It's also true that God can't be taught anything. Amen? But does that mean that Susie is saved and Fred is damned? But there's no hope? That they never had a choice to believe? I would say to you, I do not believe that that is what the Lord intends for us to understand from this passage. Very often you'll find those who hold this particular theological bent quoting halves of verses. Like Ephesians 1.4. If you talk to someone who carries this particular theology into their life, quotes the first half he says he's chosen him before the foundation of the world but notice what he's chosen us for the rest of the verse says according he has chosen us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame and before him in love you see it tells us what we're foreordained to as believers you've not chosen me but I have chosen you. They quote from John chapter 15. I've ordained you. Notice what it says in the rest of it, that you should go forth to bear fruit. It doesn't say for salvation, it says for fruit. The goal of the church is to make disciples, amen? To go out and make fruit. To go out and plant fruit trees, so that we might abound in fruit, amen? Amen. Not our job to save anybody, the Lord saves. We go plant trees, we tend trees, we water trees, we bring forth fruit. And here's what I would like to speak to you for just a moment. You see the Bible teaches that God would have all men to be saved, amen. If God desires something and then makes it impossible, how would you feel about that? I wouldn't feel too good. What does 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 say? It says, He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen? So if that verse is true, then there must be a possibility for all to be saved. You cannot simply be born on one list or another. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 4 speaking of the Lord, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen? You see, you can't use the word all if it only applies to some. And so our passage this morning speaks to this issue. Jesus actually clarified it for us in John chapter 3, verse 36. He believes that believes on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believes not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Believing is a personal choice, amen? It's available to all. The choice is, will you believe? He's not chosen us simply to be damned, simply to be saved, but he's chosen us that we might believe, that we might bear fruit, that we might walk in love. Now, to give equal opportunity and equal time to the other side, if you take the Arminian view, they have five points of Arminianism as well, and on that side, very briefly, they carry it too far the other way. God loses his sovereign position in the universe. He no longer controls his creation. He absolutely does not have his hand on the world in all places at all times, and in fact, it appears as though he drops people occasionally because they seemingly get saved and then unsaved unlimited amounts of time. I'm pretty sure that's not abiding in the vine. Amen? And so I ask you this morning to please not get confused. The actions of God in relation to his created beings are absolute. Whether men wish to accept that or not is the basis of what we read in Romans chapter 9, so read it for yourself. It is true that God is absolutely sovereign. It is also true that you must choose to believe. So if anybody asks you if you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, just tell them you're a (laughs) Calminian. Somewhere in between the two lies the truth. Absolutely sovereign God, who before the foundation of the world certainly knew exactly who was going to choose him certainly knows that we ourselves uh, have the power of choice absolutely understands that this world is a mess and some of us choose early some of us choose late but all have opportunity to choose and no one can snatch them out of our father's hands who are his amen so we're also secure we're also safe So many times I'll talk to people who carry that Arminian bent into their life and they never have the assurance of their salvation. Pastor Chuck used to tell the story about how every time he went to camp, he got saved again. (laughs) You know, he'd be convicted of his sin. He realized he was a sinner, so he'd, you know, I need to go make another commitment. If you've made a commitment to Christ, you are saved. Now abide in the vine. Please don't be confused. Jeremiah 17 says, I, the Lord, search the heart, examine the mind, and reward the man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. It's true that the Lord sees your choices. It's true that the Lord sees your life. It's true that the Lord is at work in us to will and to do and to accomplish his good pleasure. It is true that faithful is he to keep us until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? If the God who saves us can't keep us, we're in trouble. Amen? Think about it for a second. The God who offers us salvation freely must also enable us to keep our part of the bargain, which is to walk in the Spirit. To not fulfill the lust of the flesh, to give us victory over sin, to cause us to walk in his ways all of the days of our lives, as imperfectly as we may do that at times. Amen? I don't know about you, but I'm imperfect in that walking part. God has that super wide angle vision. You you notice the the new cameras, and especially the basketball games, they've got them like on top of the backboard, or behind the backboard, or they're up. They've got the flying cameras now that go all over the place. And you're seeing stuff that you used to not be able to see back in the 70s, the 80s, when there was just a handful of camera positions in the stadium. But now it's like somebody goes up for a dunk, and you can see the fingertip of somebody's little pinky that that went inside the cylinders. like they wave it off. It's goaltending. You're like, how did they see that? Well, it's because they have this incredible camera angle that comes from above. They're looking down on it. The same is true for God. Except he has super wide angle God vision. It's like 360. It's like IMAX on steroids. God can't be taught anything. He will never learn anything. He knows all things and he's known that from the beginning of time. He is the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Amen? So you can expect him to pretty much know everything, amen? You don't have to worry about that. But he's also given us the ability to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thereby be saved. Now having said all of this, anybody that can tell you that they can fully explain to you how the sovereignty of God and the choices of man interact perfectly, I want to meet that person. The church has been divided over this since 1517 and probably will continue. Know this, you've been adopted into God's family. Amen? You've been made sons or daughters. So when your head begins to spin with the mystery of election and how God works all that out, let your heart swell with the mystery of grace. Amen? Why in the world should he choose anybody? Think about it for a second. Think about your own life. Think about the people in your family. Why would God choose any of us? You can answer that question. God bless you. Because I I wouldn't pick me. Would you pick you? You know you, right? And so when you're thinking about you, would you pick you to live eternally with you? Just saying. Probably not going to happen. You're going to look at you and go, "Uh uh-uh. That's the marvel of God's grace, his unmerited favor in our lives. And he did it before the foundations of the world were laid. That's because he's absolutely sovereign. And he's absolutely gracious. There are four things here that you can look at, four specific components of this election. Notice we're chosen in him. Notice we're chosen before the creation of the world. It's done for a very specific purpose that we might be holy and blameless in his sight, and it actually has an end, and that's that we act in love. How many theologians don't act in love? That's why I prefaced my comments. There are so many people, you're going to be amazed when you get to heaven at who's there, amen? You're also going to be amazed at who's not there. Because there are going to be people you thought had their theology correct, but they didn't walk in love. And maybe they really didn't know the love of God. Leave salvation in God's hands, is my word to you this morning. Salvation is eternal. It's marked out beforehand. The word translated predestined is a Greek word, and it's proorius, and proorius has the connotation of simply taking the boundaries of something and marking it out. We would call it making a survey. If you were to survey, like you have a property that you live on, and there are normally four corners of that property, and those properties are marked by some property boundaries, there's some little monuments in there, it's marked out beforehand, that's where you live, that's the view here of predestination. God knows the edges of eternity is another way of looking at it. He knows the edges of your life. He knows where you will walk, what you will do, how you will act, and where you will go. He knows everything about your life. He's marked it out ahead of time. Now it's up to you to walk in it. He knows where it is. You don't. That's why we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Amen? Amen? Because we kind of wander all over the place. Amen? We're not real good at that walking around sometimes. We get a little bit lost occasionally. Notice this amazing adoption that comes to us. We were guilty, but now we're set free. Anybody else say hallelujah to that one? Check this out. Our relationship with God is just like the judge, and you go into the courtroom, and he throws the book at you. You're like, look, I only jaywalked. I'm going to prison for life this is not good what are you doing he says, yes you're going to prison for life and then he comes out from behind the bench and he says I'll go for you that's not enough because it doesn't end there he says and oh by the way I'm going to adopt you into my family that's our God that's his predestination he says, look, I've got it covered in my son Jesus. And because I have it covered in my son Jesus, even though you're completely guilty, I'm going to throw out the penalty. I'll pay the penalty myself, and then I'm going to take you home with me, and you can live with me for the rest of your days. That's some pretty amazing adoption, amen? And it hasn't view the Roman view of adoption, by the way, not the American view of adoption. The Roman view was, An adopted child was actually a member of the family. It didn't matter whether you were blood or not blood. It was exactly the same. Can I tell you something this morning? There are no stepchildren in the kingdom of God. Amen? You are full sons. You are full daughters brought near by the blood of the Lamb, and you have every right and every privilege of a child of God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You see, our, our standing as an adopted child is based on Christ. It's not based on you. It's not based on your performance. It is a grace gift, if you want to look at it that way. The Greek word that's translated his, his pleasure here, means a good feeling, but it comes from the heart of the person. It's not something that just is circumstantially good or best. It means that God actually wants to bring you into his family. Sometimes we, when we see people in need, we adopt children because we don't want them to go through the difficult circumstances that they're in. But it may not be as deep a heart issue. We're simply trying to save them from something. In God's case, he has a perfect view of why he wants to bring you into his family. Because he loves you with an undying love. And nothing you can do will keep him from ever loving you that way. That's why we praise Him. That's why this passage ends to the praise of His glorious grace. Anybody praising grace this morning? I'm praising grace this morning. Amen? We need to praise grace this morning. We need to praise grace every day. When we use the word praise, it is us exalting God for what He's done. That's why this whole passage reminds us of who we are in Him. That unmerited favor he's bestowed upon us. He graciously accepts us. He graciously adopts us. He graciously loves us. He graciously works to will and do his good pleasure. He graciously forgives. He graciously imparts the righteousness of Christ to us. He does all of that in grace. Amen? That's why we praise him for his grace. Without his unmerited favor, we would receive none of those things. Because then it would be our own choices. Well, I kind of accepted a little bit of grace. And on the other side, well, I'll take a little bit of the law. I don't mind being beat up a little bit. He's given us his grace. It's a free gift. And that's why we sing of the glory of the redemption of the Lord. Notice verses 7 and 8. And I just want to bring them to you from the New Living Translation because it's It it brings a special richness, for He is so rich in kindness and grace that He purchased our freedom with the blood of His Son and forgave our sins. Do you see it? He has showered us with His kindness along with all wisdom and all understanding. And so I ask you this morning, how do you respond to such grace? How do you respond to such freedom? And I would remind you that the verbs used here are all present tense. He is right now showering you with grace. He is right now showering you with kindness. He has right now purchased your freedom. He has right now showered that kindness upon us in such a way that we understand that we're His kids. Amen? For those of you that have children, you can put this into... An easy context to understand. Christmas time, have you ever noticed what people do at Christmas time for their kids? They mortgage their homes to buy presents. <laughs> you go into Toys R Us, I'd like aisle three delivered next week, please. We want to shower blessings on our kids, amen? I don't know how many of you have have sons. Sons are a special joy and a special treat because they like to light things on fire. (laughs) Destroy things for no reason whatsoever. Pull the perfectly functioning things apart just to see what they're made out of. And you tell them, please don't do that. Those are expensive. But you love them so much, what do you do? You go buy them another one. Then they take that one apart. You're like, well, I didn't know that was in there either. You, You see, God looks at us that way. He says, these are my kids. And yes, at times they kind of mess up, they tear things apart. But I love them. I want to shower them with kindness. I want to shower them with love. And I want to shower them with forgiveness. I want it to rain down on them blessing. So that wherever they are, whatever they're doing, that they will remember how much I love them. That is the goodness of our God in choosing us before the foundation of the world. That's the way He wants us to relate to Him. In grace. In grace in kindness, in mercy, in privilege. You see, when Christ was slain on the cross, that sinless sacrifice brought us life, amen? His life forfeited for ours brought us new life in Christ. Are you walking in that this morning? Are you experiencing that today? Because if you're not, you're missing what God wants for you. He wants you to experience the goodness of his blessing. And the result of that goodness is that we should praise him. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we have come this morning just like kids. Lord, we've snuck into the den as you sit on the couch of life. And Lord, we've snuggled up next to you and Oh, we pray, God, that you would just encourage us with words of truth, words of grace. Lord, that you'd heap upon us blessing on blessing. Lord, is amazing to us, but you do. And Lord, we pray this morning if there's somebody here and they've never experienced that grace, Lord, that would seek out the pastors, the elders, Lord, that they would just bow their hearts, their minds, confess their sin, and be saved. Lord, your word says, to believe on you is to be saved. And Lord, once we do that, we begin this incredible journey that ends in heaven. And so, Lord, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for blessing us. And we now give back to you in praise. We honor you, Lord, for your great love for us.